I've been teaching a series in the evening, and what I started on is talking about the answers to life's three biggest questions, which are, who am I, where did I come from, and where am I going? So the first night we dealt with, where did I come from, because where did you come from determines your answer about who you are now. If you think you evolved, if you see yourself independent from God as an individual that is not submitted to God, then you are definitely going to come up with the wrong uh, answer about who you are. So we talked about where we came from, talked about that, talked about how that today there's a lot of beliefs that are actually a faith system, evolution and things like that. It's faith. There's not any fact to prove it. It is a convenient belief primarily because it takes away responsibility. If we just happen, then we aren't responsible to a creator and we can act like a dog and we'll never have to answer for our actions. And that's just absolutely incorrect thinking. So we talked about where we came from. Last night I talked about who we are. And you are either born again or you aren't born again. You are either in Christ or you are in yourself. You are either under the blessing of God or you have been condemned already. And I tell you, that was powerful. And you just need to understand who you are. We talked a lot about what happened and how we're totally changed people in our spirits and how we need to understand that. Tonight what I want to do is talk about where we're going. And the other two questions... And the answers to them really dictate where you're going. And for most of us, I'm preaching to the choir here tonight because most of you have already been born again. You've already found out that God is your creator. You've bowed the knee to Him and therefore you're born again. And that determines where you're going. Those two choices, those two answers dictate where you're going. So in a sense, some of you may think that this isn't necessary, but I want to spend just a few moments explaining these choices and the, and the two different destination, destinations. And then I'm going to spend the majority of time tonight talking about even if you are born again and know that you are eventually going into the presence of God, how that that needs to impact your life today. And a lot of Christians have not thought about that. And I promise you this will be beneficial to you. But tonight, I don't normally teach on hell, so I made some notes. This may be the only time in my life you'll ever see me minister from notes, but I've read these scriptures, but I just don't have these in my heart in an abundance, and so I went and looked these up. But let me just give you some scriptures that will establish that, you know what, if you don't choose Jesus, that there is a real hell. And I do think it's necessary to say this, because Christians say that they believe in heaven and hell, but our culture doesn't believe in hell. And I've actually seen statistics that uh, outside of the church, the vast majority of people who are not what you call quote-unquote religious do not believe that hell exists. They don't believe that a loving God would ever send people to hell. And so people today have lost their fear of hell. And this has made an impact on our society. You know, I remember when the Columbine tragedy happened. I don't know how many of you remember that, but that was back in, what was that, two thousand and. 1999, in April of 99, and uh, Eric Klebold and uh, Dylan Harris, I think were their names, went into the Columbine School in Littleton, Colorado, and shot, I think it was 12 or 13 students dead and one teacher, and then they killed themselves. And they thought that they were escaping punishment, that nobody could catch them. 
because they committed suicide. Therefore, they couldn't be prosecuted. And you know, there was a lot of things that came out of that and people talked about gun control and should we have gun control and should we have shakedowns and police officers stationed in school and things. And while this debate was going on, there was a person in the local Colorado Springs paper that wrote a great editorial and wrote it in and says, you know, back 50 years ago when I was a kid, everybody had guns. He was raised in the country and he said every one of us owned multiple guns and nobody killed other students. And we didn't have to have police officers in the school. And he says, it's not guns that were the problem. He says, the problem is that we have lost our fear of God. We have taken God out of our schools, out of our society, and says, if those two boys would have had the knowledge that they were going to face an eternity in hell for their actions They never would have done this. And he says, we used to have the fear of God. And now that we've taken God out, we have to put police officers in. We have to take away their weapons. We have to shake them down and have metal detectors. And it was a great point. And you know what? Our society today has basically lost this concept of hell. And even though I don't think it's one of the most positive virtues and things, you know, we talk about, I don't think that we ought to preach hellfire and damnation. We do need to know that there is a real actual hell and that people, if they do not have a relationship with God are going to hell. And even if you are going to heaven, you need to have an awareness that hell exists because it's a real place and relatives and friends and neighbors are headed there if they don't make a commitment to the Lord. And this is serious. I mean, it's life and death serious. And so even a Christian needs to have an awareness of hell. So the people that are non-Christians definitely in the majority do not believe in hell. But you know, a staggering statistic is, I I forget the exact numbers, but I think it's 35, 40% of people that claim to be born again Christians do not believe in hell. And that is not what the Word of God teaches. There are only two destinations, heaven or hell. And you are going to go to one or the two. And there is no such thing as limbo, purgatory. If you die, you don't go into a place where you can pay indulgences and get prayed out of the thing and somehow or another move on to heaven instead of hell. You instantly go either into the presence of God or into the presence of the devil, totally separated from God. That's what the Bible teaches And so I'm not going to major on this, but I do think that we need to be aware of it. Here are just some scriptures that will go along with this, and I'll read these quickly. So you might want to either copy this, uh, write these verses down and look them up later. But Psalms chapter 9, verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. This is not a metaphor. This isn't talking about that they will just suffer because they don't know God. There is a literal hell. And while I'm at it, let me just say this, that there is a segment of the body of Christ that's preaching grace today, which I subscribe to grace 100%, but they have gone to grace to such an extent that they don't believe that there is a literal hell. And there are spirit-filled, tongue-talking, grace preachers preaching that hell doesn't exist, nobody is going to hell, and the only reason to get saved is just so that you can rejoice and receive the benefits of salvation. But when you die, everybody goes into the presence of God. That is not what this says. It says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 16.10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. 
That was a prophetic scripture written about Jesus. Jesus literally, when he died, went to hell. And he was in hell and he came out of hell with the keys of death and of hell hanging on his side. Jesus conquered hell. Hell is a real place. And this scripture, all of these scriptures prove that. Psalms 86, 13 says, For great is thy mercy towards me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. God hasn't delivered us from something that doesn't exist. It does exist. Through Jesus, we've been delivered from hell. Psalms 139, verse 8, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Hell, again, is a real place. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the counsel, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Jesus was not warning us of something that doesn't exist. Hell is real, and it's a place of fire. You can see, let me jump down to this in uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 23. This is a parable that Jesus gave about the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus went into Abraham's bosom and the rich man went into hell. And it says here in Matthew 23, or excuse me, Luke 16, 23. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And the rich man went on to ask God and say, Send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. Hell is a real place. There are going to be flames. And people are going to spend an eternity suffering. Some people just can't relate to this and think, I just can't understand this. How could a loving God ever torment anybody regardless of what they've done? I don't know how to convince you of this and get it across, but if you were to ever see what our sin has done to God's plan, how much devastation, how much hurt, how much heartache it has done to the human race, the people that have died of sickness, the sorrow, the grief, all of these things. And then when Jesus came and bore our sin, He paid a tremendous price because God loved every single person, not only the good people, not only those who he knew would accept him, but even the people like Hitler, Mussolini, their sins were paid for. Jesus bore the punishment for every rotten thing that they've done, the genocide of six million Jews, the terrible atrocities. Jesus bore the punishment for that. He suffered Hitler's punishment. Now, as far as we know, Hitler never took advantage of it. And so since he rejected God's salvation, he's going to have to stand judgment for his rejection of Jesus. And as far as I know, he will be in hell. But his sins were paid for. The sins of the entire world were paid for, even those who didn't accept the Lord. Jesus suffered a tremendous price. And you can sit there and say, it just doesn't seem fair to me that God would punish a person for eternity for what only happened here for so many years on the earth, but you haven't fully seen the price that Jesus paid. Once you understand that Jesus bore all of our sins and did this for us, and for a person to ignore that or to reject it, to criticize it, to take the name of God in vain and blaspheme the name of the one who literally God Almighty divested himself of everything that he had 
and became like you and me. And he didn't only suffer on the cross, but he suffered 30 years being limited to a physical body, going through tiredness and pain and ridicule and rejection. And then he suffered all of these things. And he suffered much beyond what just the physical suffering was, the emotional, all of these things. Jesus paid such a huge price that for a person to reject that or ignore it, there isn't enough punishment throughout all eternity to make a person pay for that. You may not feel that way, but that's the way that I believe it is. God paid such a huge price that for us to ignore it, I guarantee you it is just. A just, holy God cannot ignore sin. Now, some of you may be feeling a little condemned, like, man, I know I'm not doing what I should. But if you are in Christ... All of your sin, past, present, and even future tense sin has been placed upon Jesus. And for those of you who are in Christ, that your identity is a born-again person, you aren't ever going to come into judgment. You aren't ever going to come into condemnation. You are actually going to see people who've lived a holier life than you have. And yet when they stand before God, instead of having a Savior, they're going to trust their own goodness and these people will be eternally barred from the presence of God. Whereas maybe you haven't lived as good a life, but because you put faith in a Savior, you're going to gain entrance to the presence of God based on what God has done. You know, I can spend lots of time on this, but let me say that one of the reasons that people don't fully appreciate what God has done for us is because they don't fully appreciate what you deserve. If you don't understand that we deserve to be eternally separated from God, God created us for His pleasure. God created us to be a blessing to Him. God created us in His image with this potential. And brothers and sisters, there's not a one of us in here that can claim that we've ever lived up to the potential. We are grossly falling short of what God called us to do. We deserve eternal damnation. I know many of you don't think that way, but you do. And if you don't understand that you, that's what you deserve, then you'll never fully appreciate what we have in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, there's not very many people excited about that. But you know, the scripture says over in, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 50, it says, look unto the hole of the pit from which you are digged and to the rock from which you are hewn. You need to be looking two different directions. You not only need to look at Jesus and what Jesus has done for you, but you know what? You need to look at where you were and where you deserve to be. And if you don't fully appreciate your fallen state and where you were and a holy God and how we've transgressed and how that we deserve the wrath and the judgment of God, then you do not fully appreciate your salvation. You know, one of the reasons that I believe that I have always been able to maintain my thanksgiving and joy for what God did in my life, March the 23rd, 1968. One of the reasons that I've never lost that, and it has never decreased, it's stronger on the inside of me today than it was then, is because when that happened, it's like I was a religious Pharisee, I was proud of how holy I was, I've never taken a drink of liquor in my life, I have never smoked a cigarette, I have never said a word of profanity in all of my 55 years. I've never even tasted coffee. Some of you think, coffee? 
you know what? I'm, I'm just saying, you know, you, you got scripture to stand on to drink coffee. The Bible says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. Amen. <laughs> but I'm saying I lived a super holy life and I was proud of my holiness. And I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees in March the 23rd, 1968. God pulled a veil back and I saw my relative unworthiness, my hypocrisy. And I saw God's hatred for my sin. And I tell you what, I spent about two hours in front of the leadership of the churches, church, my best friends, everybody turning myself inside out and confessing this. And some of you don't understand what I'm saying. You may have gone out and lived uh, an adulterous life. You may have been a liar, a thief, all kinds of things. And you think, oh, I've been so unworthy and you don't know what I feel. I felt more unworthy than I believe any person that's ever lived in here. And I'm saying that just because I got a revelation from God's standpoint. When you show God's perfect, holy light on your sin, I don't care if I was relatively compared to you good. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Man, I recognized I was going to hell. I recognized that I needed salvation. And I repented. And to my surprise, instead of God killing me, God poured out His love in my life and for four and a half months I was just caught up in the love of God. And the thing that made it so awesome was I fully, or I believe fully, if not fully, it's, it's the fullest I've ever seen or understood. I understood my unworthiness. And I knew that the love that I felt was not based on any goodness in my life whatsoever. It was because God was loved, not because I was lovely. And if you think you are lovely and that's the reason God has done everything for you, then you don't fully appreciate your salvation. You know what? It would do you good to recognize that if it wasn't for Jesus, we would have been turned into hell. And you at your very best state, you can compare yourself among yourself and feel smug about it. At least I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, praise God. And you can feel good about that. But compared to God's standard, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if it wasn't for Jesus, every last one of us deserves hell. It would be a just, honest payment for what we've done. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30 says, And if your right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Again, Jesus is talking about hell as being a real place. Hell is a real place. And like it or not, it's not up to you to pick and choose and decide what you think is right. God has established hell. The Bible says he prepared hell for the devil and his angels. He never intended for people to be in it. It was punishment for the devil. But if you yield to the devil and do not make Jesus Christ your Lord, hell is a real place and people are going there. And this is just saying that you ought to put more importance on missing hell than you do on taking care of your body. You know, when, when society, I don't know if you can get this, but think with me for just a second. When society no longer believes in God, they believe that they've evolved. And there no longer is good and evil, God and the devil, heaven and hell. When you don't have these things, there is just an innate desire in people to hate things that are evil. 
to have standards of right and wrong. And if you don't think that God anymore exists or controls or that these things are irrelevant, if you no longer observe the laws of God, morality, then you know what happens? You de-evolve, you degenerate into where what is really bad is people that drive SUVs and people that eat fatty foods and don't take care of their bodies. And I tell you, if you were to read some of the magazine articles today, did you know that the new standard of right and wrong is based on whether you're a tree hugger and whether you help the environment and we want to save the snail darter and put 100,000 people out of work to preserve this little animal and we've got to get rid of these people that go out and eat hamburgers and do things and we need to punish them and we need to take tobacco corporations and And you know what it is? It's this desire to do something against evil. And since you don't believe that right and wrong is anything anymore, then you've degenerated to where what a person eats is is everything. And you aren't eating the right food. And you didn't treat the environment the right way. It's a a result of a God-less, non-God-fearing society. If that Harris and Clebo would have feared God... You know what? You wouldn't have had that Columbine massacre. But boy, when we quit fearing God, when we quit recognizing that we deserve the judgment of God, praise God, we aren't getting what we deserve. And then we thank God. It makes the praise even more sweet. And because people have gotten away from this, you know what? Today we say, oh yeah, I'm saved and thank you, Jesus, but I still suffer over here. You know what? If you understood what you've missed through Jesus, then whatever you're suffering, it'd be no big deal. You can get to a place where even though I don't have five color TVs and I want them really bad, but you know what? I've missed hell. I can rejoice. But yet there's some people that just can't rejoice because they just don't have the newest little gadget and stuff. And it's because you don't know where you deserve to go. You need to be aware that hell exists and that we deserve. And we need to put more importance on that than we put on preserving our body. Some of you are more concerned about whether you got cholesterol than you are about whether you go to heaven or hell. It's just stupid. Matthew chapter 23, verse 33 says, You serpents, you generations of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Hell is a real place. Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time teaching on this, but right now, hell is in the center of the earth. There are scriptures that talk about that. And a person descends into the lowest parts of the earth. That's where the incarcerated damned are. At one time before Jesus came, there was a place called Sheol, is the Old Testament Hebrew word. Sheol was divided into two parts. Abraham's bosom, which was a place of blessing, and hell, which was a place of torment. And the rich man was in hell and could see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he asked Lazarus to come touch his tongue with some water. And Abraham said, there's a great gulf between us. So this place called Sheol was separated into two parts, a place of blessing, Abraham's bosom, and then a place of torment, hell. 
When Jesus died, he descended into Sheol and he led captivity captive. Abraham's bosom left the center of the earth and it ascended into paradise and is now in the presence of God. It's what we call heaven. But in the future, when Jesus comes back and establishes all of this, this physical earth is going to be destroyed. The heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and hell that is located in the present in the uh, midst of this earth is going to be thrown into another place. It doesn't give a geographical location, but it's called a lake of fire, a place where they will be tormented forever and ever and ever. Hell will cease to exist after the second coming of the Lord and they will be moved into a lake of fire. And instead of people being in heaven, they are going to dwell on the new earth in the new Jerusalem. We will not live for all eternity in heaven. We will live here on this earth in the new Jerusalem where God is the light of it. And praise God, there's some awesome things said about that. Look here in John chapter 3 verse 16. This is about the positive side. If you make the right choice and make Jesus your Lord, here's your destination. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You will not perish. You will not go to hell if you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has redeemed us from hell. Matthew chapter 25, verse 24, there's a parable given here about how the Lord's going to bring every person that's ever lived before Him and He's going to separate them as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, 24, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Man, you are blessed of God. You are going to enter into God's kingdom instead of into hell. You know what? If you were to think about these things, this ought to be enough reason to make you rejoice. Man, we're short-sighted. We get to looking at what's happening and I'm missing my favorite program to listen to this guy. And because of that, you get depressed. You need to get an eternity mindset. You need to start thinking about, I was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. And if you really understood that, that ought to be reason enough for you to rejoice the rest of your life. Praise God. Luke 16, 25, this is again that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It says, but Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receives good things and likewise Lazarus received evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. People in hell are tormented. People in heaven are comforted. John 14, 2 through 3. You know, this is a passage of scripture. Let me just turn over here and read this to you. In, in uh, John chapter 14, verse 1. This is the night before Jesus was crucified and he spoke to his disciples and he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know, I've got two hours worth of teaching on that one verse. I hadn't got time to go into this, but that is an awesome verse. He said, you let not your heart be troubled. You're the one that has control over your emotions. It's a lie to think that you can't control yourself. This happened, therefore I'm just an animal. I've got to react like this. No, you were created in the image of God and God has given you the ability to control your emotions or it would have been unjust on the Lord's part for him to tell his disciples the night before his crucifixion when they were going to see him crucified and it looked like they were going to be the next ones killed. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. That would be unjust for him to give a command like that. Most people would say, hey, that's asking too much. You aren't empathizing. 
You aren't sympathizing. You don't understand where I've come from. God told us not to let our heart be troubled. He told us to rejoice in the Lord always in Philippians chapter 4. And just in case somebody missed that and thought, oh, it can't mean what it says. He says, again, I say rejoice. Amen. (laughs) He knew somebody was going to think that's bound to be a mistake. So he says, no, again, I say rejoice. In John chapter 16, verse 23 or 33. He says, in the world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He specifically said, there's going to be problems, but rejoice. I've overcome the world. He gave us commands to control our emotions. And if you've bought into this lie that, well, this person said this, I just can't help it. That's a lie. That's telling you that you are an animal, that you evolved, that you weren't created in the image of God that you don't have a God quality on the inside of you. I guarantee you, you have the ability of God on the inside of you to control yourself. You do not have to fall apart like a $2 suitcase every time something tragic happens. Amen. So he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. You know, I've got a 16 tape album on John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And it goes verse by verse through here. And it's, I call it the Christian survival kit because in John 16, one, it says these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. In John chapter 13, he told his disciples that he knew they were going to forsake him, that all of them were going to flee. He knew everything that was going to happen. And he said, John 14, 15, and 16, to prepare his disciples so that they would be able to endure and come through this trial victorious. They failed the test. They all forsook him. They all fled. And most of us would think, well, you couldn't have it any other way. But they could have. He was giving them what they needed. And so when I saw this, I started teaching through here about the things you have to do in a crisis situation to keep from losing it and having the devil beat you. The first thing is you got to grab hold of your emotions. If you let your emotions go out of control, you can't rein them back in later. If you just fly off and get into defeat and depression and then try and recover, that's just a bigger battle than what you want. The first step is grab control of yourself. But then when I got to verses 2 and 3 about he started talking about heaven, I thought, now what did this have to do with being able to endure hardship and being able to stand and come through problems? And it took me a while to meditate on this, but what the Lord showed me through this was that basically he was just telling them, guys, look, it doesn't matter how bad your situation is. You know, if worse comes to worse, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And what's so bad about dying? You know, we sing these songs about when we all get to heaven, what a day that will be, oh, glorious day. And then the doctor tells you you're going and you just start crying and it's terrible. Something's wrong with this picture. You know what? A knowledge about our destination being heaven, if you understand it correctly, it will give you great comfort. 
Matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where Paul talked about, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that you don't sorrow the way that other people do. Because we believe that if Jesus died and rose again, then when he comes back, he's going to bring those who have died in him and we are going to be resurrected and we will meet them in the air. And he says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Heaven is a comforting thought. So basically what he's telling the people, you know, if, if your situation looks so bleak, that every time you see light at the end of the tunnel, you think it's another train. You know what? Then what you need to do is, if you can't see anything good in your existence, then just think about heaven. You know, I believe it's God's will for you to prosper financially. And I believe God wants you to prosper. But... If you don't see prosperity in your life, you haven't got any reason to gripe or complain because if you never saw it in this life, you are going to live in eternity on streets paved with gold in mansions. You are going to live with everything supplied, perfect. And if you had to, close your eyes and think about heaven and get over the discouragement, the depression that tries to come against you. I believe it's God's will for you to be well in this life. But you know what? Even if you don't see health, then you ought to just rejoice about someday there's going to be a place where I am not going to have any more sorrow nor any more crying. Let me read this uh, scripture to you out of Revelation. I believe it's chapter 20. Or Revelation chapter 21, talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, neither crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. You know, if you are suffering in this life, God wants you to be well right now. But if you're struggling with that, and if you feel like I'm never going to make it, get eternity minded and recognize that if worse comes to worse and you die, you're going to go into the presence of God where there's no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain, no more if any of the former things. We are going to be blessed. Brothers and sisters, if we really thought about where we're going, if we really had heaven in our heart and thought about what has been given to us, I believe we're supposed to live in victory here. But if you had nothing but hardship here, you could still be rejoicing because your future is so bright, you got to squint to look at it. I tell you what, it's going to be awesome. And you know, this life is going to be like that compared to eternity. If you've suffered for 20 years, 20 years, a million years from now is going to seem like nothing. And you are going to be in the presence of the Lord. And if you understood this, you know, people in the past, before the baptism of the Holy Spirit was prevalent and people understood about healing and things like this, did you know that people 50, 100 years ago, missionaries suffered things that they didn't have to suffer They allowed sickness thinking it was the will of God. And I disagree with all of those things. And yet most of those people that had sickness, poverty, hardship, hurt, and pain that they didn't have to go through if they would have understood how to appropriate their salvation, they rejoiced in ways that make most of us look pitiful comparative. And yet we are blessed in all of these ways. And yet they could rejoice even in the midst of their sickness and everything else. And one of the reasons is because... They had a goal of heaven. They were eternity minded. That's the reason Jesus put this in here. Right as he was telling them about the worst time of their entire life was going to come upon them. He was saying, 
Remember that in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. Psalms chapter 16 verse 11 says, In the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. I tell you what, to be in the presence of God, most of us don't have a clue what that's about. But to be in the presence of God without even having to use our faith, I mean even your senses can see and feel God. And to be in His presence, man, there's going to be so much joy and pleasure that it's going to make all of the problems of this earth seem like nothing. Matter of fact, the Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, I believe it's either verse 16 or 17, it says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Did you know that whatever you've suffered, you look at the Jews, the Holocaust, you look at people that have been raped and murdered and plundered and terrible things that have happened and you wonder how in the world could they ever be compensated. In heaven, those things aren't even going to be worth mentioning because the glory that is prepared for us is so infinitely greater than any problem you've ever suffered in this life. Man, if you could think about that, brothers and sisters, I believe in victory. I believe we're supposed to walk in victory. But if you just thought about heaven, that's enough to put a spring in your step and to get you out of depression. And yet spirit-filled Christians who are supposed to have access to all of this power of God go around and 80, 90% of spirit-filled Christians fight depression constantly. That's an insult against God. It's an indication of our lack of belief and focus on the things of God. Boy, we are blessed, 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 blessed and in this life. But if this life didn't even exist, if sickness was our lot, if poverty was our lot, if we didn't have joy in this life, we should be able to at least comfort ourselves thinking about how awesome heaven is. Man, we need to be eternally minded. Look at this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Boy, this is something that you need to get hold of. This would change your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul talking, and I won't take time, but in this chapter, he talked about how that the apostles suffered more than anybody else. They were ashamed and disgraced and rejected, whereas the people they ministered to were esteemed and blessed and prospered. He says, it's like God set forth us, the apostles, last appointed unto death. And he talked about all of his problems. But then down here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 16, it says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. He was talking about they were suffering in the outward man, the physical man. But he says, regardless of whatever we're suffering, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And in verse um, 17, But our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are eternal, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Man, Paul here is saying something awesome. Paul said in verse 17, Our light affliction... And some people think, well, man, that's the difference. Paul just didn't have any of the problems that I've got. 
Paul didn't have any problems. He just had a light affliction and nobody knows the trouble I feel. Nobody knows my sorrows. We write songs about I'm worse off than anybody's ever been on the face of the earth. And we get great comfort out of thinking that our problems are worse than anybody else's. That's a deception. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says, There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. The moment you believe you've got a unique situation, you've exempted yourself from the admonition of the Word of God and you think your situation's unique, therefore what works for me won't work for you. But it's not true. There's, all of us endure the exact same thing. What works for me will work for you. Paul had his affliction wasn't light because he didn't have the problem. It was because of his perspective on it. If you, I'm not going to take time, but if you turned over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you could read Paul's light affliction, he listed. it. He had been persecuted, beaten with rods, beaten with whips. Did you know when they beat you with rods, they hung you up and they took metal rods and they beat the back of your legs and your feet until they broke the bones. And in his day, he walked everywhere he went. He was beaten with rods more than once. He was beaten with whips three times, 39 stripes. He was thrown into prison, put into the stocks. He had been shipwrecked. He had been persecuted. They had tried to kill him. And on and on he goes listing all of these things. And he says, it's just a light affliction. So let me say this. If Paul had worse problems than you did, he suffered and was punished and and ridiculed and rejected and had more problems than you've got and yet he was able to call his afflictions light, how can you justify talking about your heavy burden? You know, the problem is, it's not our problems. It's your attitude towards them that make things big or little. I've had problems in my life. You know, Paul at our partner banquet said that he's been with us at good times and bad times. Paul was with us when we had a terrible, terrible thing happen. Probably the worst thing that's ever happened. Maybe one of the worst things that's ever happened in our life. It made Paul Harvey's nude broadcast worldwide. He couldn't believe that this had happened. He was shocked. And you know what? Paul was with us when that happened. If I was to tell you about some of the problems that we've had, I could get many of you feeling sorry for me. And yet, it's just a light affliction. You know what? I don't have a bad attitude. I was up ministering the next morning when people saying, you can't preach. And I said, yes, I can. Well, how could you preach after what's happened to you? And I said, hey, Jesus is the same. I'm going to tell them about Jesus, not about me. I could tell you things about me, and yet it is not a big deal in my life, not because I haven't had problems, but because of the way I look at it. In your mind, you either magnify problems or diminish them. Your mind can, it's like a pair of binoculars. You can either look through the little end and out the big end and make everything a big deal, or you can look out through the big end and out the little end and shrink everything down. Some of you, it's like the devil put a toothpick in your path. And by the time you get through looking at that and meditating on it, it's this huge ball bat and he's beating your brains out with a toothpick. (laughs) Something that is insignificant. 
I've had people come in prayer lines before and stand there and they're just crying and I say, what's wrong with you? And they tell me and I've had to bite my lip before to keep from laughing. Like, that's it? <laughs> this is what's upset. I said, I have worse things happen to me on good days than what you're describing. I had a guy come into my office one time and he was just crying uncontrollably. And I said, what's wrong now? Because he always had something wrong. And it was a Monday and he says, well, I went to church yesterday and he says, I was so hungry to hear the word of God. I just wanted to hear the word. And these two women in front of me just talked and whispered the whole time and it distracted me and the devil stole the word from me. And he was crying. Man, the spirit of slap came all over me. I just wanted to grab this guy and... I had just gotten off the phone with a friend of mine who lost his wife. She had died. They'd been married for 50 years and I called to see if he needed anything. And he was just saying, oh brother, I'm blessed. God is so good. He was praising God and thanking God. And he had lost his mate of 50 years and he was happy. And here a guy was who had some people whispering in front of him. And because of it, he was in depression. I just said, hey, why didn't you get up and move? He never thought of that. He bound the devil and prayed that God had have him shut up. You just get up and move somewhere else is the way you did. Boy, I, I tell you what, there are some of you that, you know, right now you're obsessing over things. And today you have not had joy. You haven't been rejoicing because of some problem. Maybe the traffic was bad. Maybe this, maybe that. And you know what? Next week you won't even be able to remember what it is that was bothering you. For sure, a year from now, most people will not remember what it was that kept you from rejoicing and just being thankful today. Satan has magnified insignificant things. Paul had bigger problems than you've got and they were only a light affliction. So if Paul can do that with bigger and more numerous problems, you could do it. It's not your problems that's a problem. It's the way you view them. It's the worth. It's the value you place on those things. If you were to get to where you value heaven and you, just, you were willing to give up your life, give up your possessions, give up everything you've got for God's kingdom, then you know what? You wouldn't care whether you had the newest, biggest, best of everything. You wouldn't be discouraged. You wouldn't feel so bad. I'm preaching better than you're listening. <laughs> You guys are sure quiet in here. Man, Paul's saying, it's just a light affliction. I've been beaten with whips and thrown in prison. And I stayed in jail for two years when I was absolutely innocent. And no problem. He took that two years in prison and wrote half of the New Testament. He just turned it into a victory, into a blessing. Brothers and sisters, we're going to stand next to some of these giants in the faith like Paul. And you know what? Your little gripes and complaints are not going to carry much weight. I tell you what, you better just, you better pray that you get the right attitude and quit griping about stuff before you get there and really make a fool out of yourself. <laughs> Telling Abraham how bad your situation was. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he, said, he gives two reasons why he was able to shrink his problems into just a light affliction. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. You know what he's referring to? He looked at things in the light of eternity. 
He was thinking about heaven. He was thinking about where am I going. And because of that, it made where he was much more palatable, much easier to take. Our society, again, we don't think about where we've come from. We don't think about God a lot. And even Christians don't think about heaven a lot. And because of that, we get mired down in the everyday details and in trap. It just, some of the things that people justify our weakness with just really great on me. It just makes, you know, I just want to nuke them till they glow and shoot them in the dark. It really makes me mad. People talk about, well, our youth today are under pressures and there's things against our youth today that no generation has ever had and it's so tough and, oh, it's just terrible pressure today. That is a lie. That is a lie, lie, lie. There is no temptation taking us but such as is common to man. Satan just puts it in a different wrapper, a different bow. You know what, kids today, you know what their temptations are? They don't have the designer jeans with the logo on the back pocket that their friend does. And because of that, they're suffering. <laughs> their tennis shoes only cost $100 a piece and they don't have all of the things that light up and stuff and somebody's signature on it. And so they're depressed today. It's so tough on kids. Give me a break. A friend of mine over in Chard, England, when he was about three years old, he was taken from his parents because they were under the blitz rig and under the bombing in England. And for three years or something, he was kept on a farm out in a field with 300 other kids and raised like animals to protect them from the bombing because their parents had to stay and work in the cities. Three to six years old, he was raised with 100 kids out in the middle of a field. You know what? That's hardship. Not having a designer pair of jeans isn't hardship. The only reason that's hard is because our values are so screwed up and we think that it's some kind of God-given right that everybody has to have brand new best this and keep up with everybody else. And we're the ones that place those values that have put this stress on us. You're the one that makes it so stressful to drive in traffic. You wait until the last minute so that you have to get there with no delays, and that's just not smart. If traffic is bad, leave half an hour early and so that you can sit there and listen to my tapes in the car. <laughs> Amen. You're the one that makes it stressful on yourself. Just enjoy life. Kick back. Enjoy yourself. You don't have to have all of this stress. See, the Apostle Paul, he says, it's just a light affliction because it's only going to endure for a minute. They can only beat me so many times until they kill me. And then I'm going to live for eternity. Paul, now for nearly 2,000 years, has been basking in the presence of Jesus. And you know what? From the light of eternity, from the perspective of eternity, it's true that his affliction was just for a moment. It's not a big deal. You know, I went to, I go to Charlotte every year to the church, Freedom Christian Center, and I've got a partner there that invites me in to speak to his employees. And a number of years ago, uh, he, he invites me in. He tells the employees, he says, the clock is running, you're being paid. You listen to this man talk as long as he wants to. And I just preach to him, and we see great miracles happen. I mean, we see some awesome things happen. And a few years ago, there was a woman who the day before slit her wrist and tried to kill herself and went to the hospital. 
and she had tried to commit suicide. She'd been married either three or four times before, and she heard me speak. She came back there, and she just started crying, and she says, I'm not a Christian like you and Chip, the owner of this business, but she says, I've been through three divorces. My husband just told me he's going to divorce me. I tried to commit suicide yesterday. If I go through, if this fourth divorce happens, I just can't live. Would you please pray for my marriage? So I looked at this lady and I said, now let me make sure I've understood this. I said, if you aren't a Christian and you know you aren't a Christian. And she said, that's right. And I said, if you were to die today, you would go directly to hell. You would not pass go. You don't collect any money. You just go directly to hell if you were to die today. And she said, that's right. And I said, and you want me to pray for your marriage and not pray for your salvation. And she just sobered up and looked at me and she said, well, yeah. And I said, lady, did you realize after you've been burning in hell for a thousand years, you won't give a rip if you've married five or six times. Who cares about your marriage? I said, you need to get saved. And this woman says, you know, I think you're right. And she prayed and she got born again. And then we prayed for her marriage. But see, there's some people that say, oh yeah, I know I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. And as long as it's a hangnail, I think I can still get a praise the Lord out. As long as it's minor. But if you're going through a divorce, you can't rejoice. Why not? Some people, well, you can't rejoice. The Lord said rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Psalms 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Some people say, how could you rejoice in the midst of a divorce? Well, if nothing else, look at it in the light of eternity. And think, thank you, Jesus, that the Bible says in heaven, we aren't going to marry nor are given in marriage. (laughs) Man, I only have to put up with this problem for 60 years. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You can rejoice in that. You can rejoice in the scripture that says, I've graven you upon the palms of my hand and that I'll never divorce you. I'll never leave you. You know what? Usually in a divorce, you kind of deserve what you get. At least you partially deserve it. And if nothing else, you can say, Father, thank you that you're never going to divorce me even though I deserve it, that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. And you could rejoice in that. Certainly you can rejoice going through a divorce. That doesn't mean you have to like the divorce, but you know what? You got so many wonderful things in your life. And if you'd never saw any benefit in this life, if you were eternity minded, you could rejoice and say, oh, thank you, Jesus. It's just short term. Someday I'm going to live with you and I'll never have to worry about marriage again. And you could rejoice. People would say, but I can't rejoice if the doctor tells me I'm going to die. Why not? If you were thinking about eternity and thinking about how awesome heaven is when the doctor says you're going to die, you just want to reach up and kiss this guy. (laughs) Awesome. That's what Paul said. Philippians chapter one, he says, man, I'm in a great strait between two decisions. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, but I know it's more needful for you that I stay here. So he says, I'm going to stay here because of you. But he really wanted to go. You know, when you get that attitude, how do you stop a person who is so excited about heaven? If you come up and say, if you preach the gospel anymore, I'm going to kill you. Paul just goes, oh, awesome. (laughs) Awesome. What do you do with the guy that when you threaten him, he just goes out and preaches that much harder? 
So you say, well, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to stick you in prison. So he goes to praising God at midnight in prison with his feet and hands in the stock stocks and his back beaten and God, they go to worshiping God. God goes to patting his foot and an earthquake comes and opens up all of the prison doors and the whole jail gets saved. And so they come and say, get out of jail. You're saving all of the people. So then he goes back to prison. What do you do with the guy that's not afraid to die? What do you do with the guy that if you threaten him, he's just thrilled with it. You know, fear of death is what causes a tremendous amount of problems. I talked to a man out here tonight who believed he was healed, but he just, and he had already had a surgery, and right now he's really okay, but he has fear about what could happen. And he says, would you please pray over that? And basically I told him the same thing we're saying. Confront your fear. What would happen? Worst case scenario. What's going to happen if you didn't see a healing manifest? I could die. And I said, man, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> if you just stop and face it and say, what's going to happen? If I'm believing God, the doctor says I'm going to die if I don't take this treatment. I've decided I'm going to believe God. What's the worst thing that could happen? You die. Not a big deal. Somebody, what's a big deal? That's because you aren't eternally minded. When you get a little narrow perspective and think that this life is all there is, and having your retirement plan is the most important thing in your life, you aren't thinking straight. You need to recognize that, man, there is an eternity that we're going to spend with God. So you need to put everything in the light of eternity. And then verse 18, he says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This, again, is talking about an eternal mindset mindset. He not only put everything in the light of eternity, but he says everything that is visible is temporal, temporary. But the things that you can't see, those are the eternal things. That's where the real worth and value is. You know, if you can see your checkbook in the red, then that's just temporary. If you could see a tumor, if you can see a disease, if you can see what it's doing to you, that's all temporary. But the things that you can't see are what's really important. That's eternal. If you really started understanding where you're going, that you are going to heaven, you have a reservation. It is secure. And there's a lot of the body of Christ that preaches that even though you're born again, you might miss the trip out. I don't believe that's so. Man, you're secure. It's not up to you to keep yourself saved. There's not some people that are going to go in the rapture and others that are going to be left. You know what? I'm leaving on the first load out. And I'm not going to miss it. My reservation's secure. And if I'm asleep, he'll wake me up. It's all going to work out. If you really stop and thought about that, and if you were just conscious of where you are going, what you've missed, and the blessedness that you're headed to, it would transform your life. Let me close with this one story. I was in um, Colleyville, um, Illinois, I believe it is, holding a meeting. And I was with, I forget who this is. I don't remember if it's Billy Brim or what's the other lady, Billy something or another. Billy Adams. It might have been Billy Adams. But anyway, I was with one of them. They gave me a book that was entitled Intramuros. And it's uh, been out of print. It's been reprinted as My Vision of Heaven. 
but it was by a woman, Ruth Springer, in the 1800s who died. And uh, she was only dead for, I forget the exact deal, I think it was three hours or something in the physical. But during this period of time, she went to heaven and spent three years in heaven in her experience. And she just wrote this book not trying to give any explanations, theological things. She just says, this is what happened. Anyway, that lady gave that book to me. I started reading it after a church service. I wound up staying up all night long reading that book. And I can't relate all of the stuff to you, but it is just awesome. She just had a way of describing what it was like going through this river that you could get down in and yet you could breathe underwater and and just describing heaven and how beautiful the mansion was, describing what it was like when Jesus came walking and people would come out and everybody would fall down and worship Him. And I tell you, after reading that book, I literally spent about a month trying to get my equilibrium back, thinking, God, I know I've got to stay here because you've got a job for me. But man, I was ready to go. If somebody would have told me I was dying of cancer, I'd have kissed them. I'd have said, oh, man, this is awesome because I was so excited about heaven. And I came home and I had to go to the office and Jamie unpacked my bag. And when I got back from the office, Jamie was sitting in a chair just kind of in the same days that I was with tears in her eyes. And it had the same effect on her. And that's just a little glimpse of some person's experience. And they can't describe that. I've had dreams where I heard angels singing. And you can't, just, you can't compare it to singing on this earth. There are sounds that don't even, we don't even have. It's, there's no way to describe it. Everything is going to be so infinitely awesome that if you could just think about where you are going and get this mindset, it would make your little problem that you had today more than bearable. It's just for a moment. Man, I'm, I'm on here. Dealing with cancer, it's no big deal. Amen? So what if somebody divorces me and leaves? You know, that's not what I want. And I believe that God can intervene. And I'd pray and believe for that thing to change. But you know what? If, if everybody left me, if Jamie was to leave me, I love Jamie and there's no, we got a good marriage. But you know what? If Jamie would leave me, I'm still content in the Lord. I could still rejoice in the Lord. I guarantee you, I still would have more than enough to praise God for because He's been good to this boy. There isn't a reason for a person in here to have a gripe or a complaint. And I know some of you think, you don't know my problem. You don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know how much God's given you. If you were just to get to praising God for heaven. You know, the Bible says, with thanksgiving... Let your request be made known unto God. If you got a request, if you got a legitimate gripe or complaint, just make a decision that before I ever ask for anything, before I ever gripe about whatever's happened, I'm going to start by just praising God for five minutes. If you were to do that, by the time you got through praising, your problem over here would be so small, you'd say, oh God, it's not that important. It'll be taken care of, amen. No big deal. Either I get healed and I get to rub the devil's nose in it and share a testimony, or I just go to be with you, and it's awesome. I can't lose for winning. 
Brothers and sisters, if we understood heaven, if you kept your mind focused on where you're going, I guarantee you it'd make a difference on how you felt right now. When you plow a row, you know, I've always heard farmers say this, you have to pick a spot way in the distance and aim at it to make a straight row. If you just look down and try and go straight, you'll wind up veering off or having a crooked line. You have to pick a spot in the distance and head towards that to keep you on a straight and narrow. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. You need to see where we're going. Know that someday I'm going to be with God and therefore this little sexual sin that is so tempting at the moment, it's not worth compromising my future and destroying all of the things that God's got for me. Think about eternity. Think about somebody else. Man, worship God and it'll keep you going straight. Brothers and sisters, we need to, we need to know where we're going. And you need to be focused on that. And I tell you, doing that would make a huge difference in the way you evaluate what's going on right now with you. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Father.